Welcome to Bike Talk. I'm Andrea Lernan, a climate action leadership strategist and the curator of the Bikes for Climate hashtag and the conversation online. And our next guest or our guest today is someone that I met really, I think via Twitter. So I'm excited to welcome Lloyd Alter and I will give a brief bio just so he doesn't have to do it. Most of you probably know Lloyd from reading Treehugger. His bio from that site is that he's been an architect, real estate developer and prefab entrepreneur. And he now teaches sustainable design at Ryerson School of Interior Design. He's been with Treehugger since about 2005. And the reason that he is such a great person to talk with about bikes is that he's been into them for a while and it's been fun to sort of read his whole process with e-bikes. So welcome Lloyd. A pleasure to be here. It's been so fun to like just sort of watch you on Twitter and for us to kind of get into the e-bikes thing together and kind of share that experience. So I would love to hear a little bit more about your personal journey with regard to transportation, you know, from your whole life and kind of how you ended up with the e-bike fanaticism that you have. Well, I um, basically have been into uh, regular bicycles for a very long time. When I was 18 years old, I rode across the country from Toronto to Vancouver on one and uh, it took a few years before I could get back in the saddle after that, but always had a bike. Uh, when I was in uh, business, when I was in practice and when I was in real estate development, I always drove my car. I didn't think of using a bike in the city at all. I had a little Porsche 914 and I would just use it for just going a couple of blocks. And it wasn't till basically the city started getting more and more aggravating and crowded in that. And I started seriously thinking about environmental issues that I started actually using the bike. So I didn't have a, I've always had a bike, but I never became, it was never my serious mode until, oh God, I guess about 15 years ago when I started getting really serious about it and writing about it all the time and the carbon implications and the planning implications, the urban design implications. And um, Toronto has never been a uh, bike friendly city. In fact, it was, if everybody's heard of our crack smoking mayor, Rob Ford, who yes. actually one of his first things that he did when he came into power was rip out an almost brand new bike lane at a cost of half a million dollars. Uh, he was, what was his favorite quote? You know, take your life into your own hands. It's like swimming with the sharks. My heart bleeds for every cyclist who gets killed, but they brought it on themselves. This is the mayor of the city talking. Wow. And, you know, the whole political organization of the city was 20 years ago, the province, which controls the city, like states control cities in the states, I believe, decided that the city of Toronto was too left wing and too this and too that. So we merged it with all of the suburban municipalities so that basically political control was now in the hands of suburban people, politicians who hate bikes. And anything you wanted something approved downtown, they rejected it. You wanted anything happening. No, we want our cars. We want this and that. And when when Rob Ford got first, when he died and then was replaced, his uh, successor has the same sort of policies, like he's a nice guy and nobody hates him and he's not crazy, but he's a long time, very conservative guy. And so nothing ever seemed to happen in Toronto to make it easier and better for bikes. Very, very, very slow. Now, the other thing for me and e-bikes, though, I guess we'll get into that, that a couple of companies started uh, lending me them to test. And ah. I'd always said, I'd always said, I don't need an e-bike. I'm fit. It keeps me fit. Why would I get an e-bike? Um, you know, but I'm getting older and I still thought this will keep me young to keep biking. But Toronto is built on a tilt. You know, it all slopes gradually down to Lake Ontario. And so when I would try to take a bike to work, it was always easy in the morning. But then, you know, you finish a long day and it's the slight incline all the way back up. It was work. And so that was one thing. As soon as you got an e-bike, you noticed this is gone. The tilt of Toronto disappears. My house is at the top of the one hill in Toronto, but it's very short. It wasn't that bad. It was the long slope from where I lived down to the lake and back. 
In fact, one of my early jobs that I years ago that I used to bike to uh, was unusually, it was up north, away from the lake. And I never had a problem biking there because in the morning you're all energetic and I'd go there and then glide back at night. <laughs> so th the other thing is unlike, Unlike where you live, Toronto has sort of a Midwestern climate that it's really, really hot and awful in the summertime, muggy, and it's really cold in the winter. And on a regular bike, if you dress for when you're leaving in winter, pretty soon you're overheating and you got to be unzipping. And you, so you either start cold or you overheat. Uh, and in summer, you know, the same thing in reverse. You're biking away, you overheat. Whereas the wonderful thing about e-bike with this kind of climate is you dress as if you're going for a walk, not as if you're going for a ride, you know, because you can just decide I'm not going to work so hard that I overheat either in summer or in winter. So it made it between the seasonality of it, the way that you could dress as if you were walking rather than riding and the way that you could actually deal with this Toronto slope, it changed everything. And, you know, I would, when I was riding the bike down to teach in Ryerson in the middle of winter, and I've got my big black diamond ski gloves on that are so heavy that, you know, you would die if you tried to wear those while you were doing normal biking. The other thing also, I mean, you can go so much further. I do, you know, all the studies show that although it's easier, people go much further on the e-bike. And I found that this was absolutely true. I would just take it on trips that I always used to take the car. And since I'm trying not to drive at all, because I've been doing this project, I should describe where I'm trying to live a, a 1.5 degree lifestyle. You know, the amount of carbon that people should can burn any year to keep our temperature rise under 1.5 degrees. And that's estimated for 2030, we've got to be decreasing our carbon emissions every year, that it should be 2.5 pounds of uh, 2.5 tons, metric tons of carbon per year. And what I found is the two easy, the two things that are absolutely critical, if you wanna hit this, is don't drive. It just, it just blows you out of the water instantly. Even if you drive a Tesla, because if you look at the life cycle, life cycle analysis, uh, even driving a Tesla will put you almost over 2.5 tons in a year, but a gasoline car, it just any day I got it, got in it, it would just ruin it. So I've really barely driven in over a year. We have a Subaru that my wife drives occasionally, but of course in the middle of a pandemic, no one's going anywhere anyway. <laughs> um, but uh, basically the e-bike just makes it so much easier and this extends the season because of the flexibility and dressing. And um, I just found it life-changing. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think to your point, people are like, you know, how does it work out and whatever? And I said, you know what, I ride my bike all the time. That's what I did anyway. Once I had an e-bike, I realized that I was like, wow, this thing that I love to do, I can ride it to the distance that is maybe 10 miles further, right? Like it just, it extended your rides and how, the range of your rides. So you did choose to do it more often, Yes, which made you get more mileage on your, e like, it's kind of hard to describe to people who are just like, yeah, I'll take it for short trips. It's like, no, if you start with a couple short trips, you're going to be like, this is so great. <laughs> I'm going to take it for my next range out of trips. Well, I convinced a coworker of mine who um, you should probably interview at some point, Catherine Martinko, who um, got a red uh, long tail uh, e-bike and she lives in a little town in the side of Lake Huron, where everybody drives pickup trucks and nobody ever saw one of these things. And she's been riding it all winter. And her biggest problem is people stopping her to ask her what it is. But, um, and now there's like back orders for, you know, Port Elgin, um, Ontario, of people who say, this is so wonderful. And she's finding, again, the same thing that she can 
dress appropriately for up there, which is basically wearing a whole ski outfit. You know, it's colder up there and it's got, and she can uh, manage to ride the bike. And it's right on the shore of Lake Huron and the winds are sometimes huge. And that's the thing that she says is the revolution on the e-bike that she can actually bicycle into the wind. Into the wind, yeah. Which is uh, something otherwise can be really, really hard. Yeah. And it, being a cargo bike, it's also heavier, which gives her more stability in the wind. You're actually kind of getting to a point that I wanted to get later in the conversation, but let's just go for it. And that is how everyone who rides an e-bike, e-cargo bike, et cetera, kind of becomes their own little climate action influencer. So by virtue of the fact that you're seen riding this e-bike, the kinds of conversations that you just mentioned that Catherine gets into, and I'm sure you get into, people just walk up and go, tell me about it. And then... What I've been telling people on Twitter is take the time to stop and talk a little bit about it because people are ready to be converted. So yes, they this, are. this interesting idea about, you know, my whole bikes for climate thing is like the more they are, the more people will get into it, the more people will demand the bike lanes, et cetera. So talk a little bit about, you know, the influence that people riding them now have and maybe surprising influencers or the influence that leaders say if a mayor was riding them, et cetera. Talk a little bit about that. Right. No, and, and this year in particular, you know, there's so many people who basically got their bikes out of the basement or tried to buy bikes or the uh, increase in the number of people riding in Toronto has just been massive. And there's two reasons. One, of course, everybody wants the exercise and nobody wanted to take the subway and that. But the other thing is that, you know, I've always said there are three things that we need to really have a bike boom and particularly an e-bike boom. And uh, is that uh, decent, affordable bikes, um, a safe place to ride. And Toronto never really, because even when they had bike lanes, they were just painted bike lanes. There were no really separated ones. They It took 10 years of fighting to get the main east-west bike lane on the major cross street into town to get it in. And even that, they only did a short section until the pandemic when they said, oh, well, let's extend it out either way. And they're keeping it. That they're, so it's wonderful. You know, 10 years for a crappy piece of it, one year to get it like doubled in length. Wow. They, the north-south Main Street, Young Street, up in the suburbs, there was a whole proposal. Right now it's a six-lane car sewer. And there was a proposal to uh, redesign it and to put in bike lanes and do all this. And the mayor and the northern politicians said no we like the car sewer we'll build new bike lanes on the next streets and you know how that works you know yeah. the cyclists have to go like that so the drivers can go whoosh and <laughs> the mayor was against the bike lanes and taking out the car lanes fixing up the streets and then the pandemic hit and you know everybody's saying well, they're seeing all the people on the bikes and a lot of them are going to stay. And when they had their final vote, they actually voted to put the bike lanes on the main street. So, and these were mostly conservative politicians from the North who actually decided to come around and support it. So eventually we're making a little bit of progress. The next thing, the biggest problem here also is the safe place to park because e-bikes are expensive. Yeah. I know I used to, if I had a bike and it got stolen, I was out $250 and there were a lot of bikes or whatever. And suddenly you've got all these people riding $2,000 and $3,000 e-bikes and you don't want to just hook it up to a ring. Yeah. I, I had a, I had an optometrist appointment the other day because, and I went down there. It was just to get something kept taken out of my eye. The whole appointment took such a short period of time that I actually said to her, wow, it took me longer to lock my bike than to have the whole appointment because wow. I have three locks and I always put on three locks that collectively cost more than my last regular bicycle did because yeah. you're so paranoid that you don't want your $2,500 bike just going away. And with angle grinders nowadays, with battery-powered angle grinders, I can probably, even with the $500 worth of heavy-duty locks on it, still probably lose it in 15 minutes. Something has to be done about that to just make things more secure, uh, some more secure places to park than just the rings that we've got. 
Yeah. So safe, safe places to ride, safe places, secure places to park. These, these are the real things that you need, as well as probably uh, more affordable bikes. And that's another challenge altogether. Yeah. Are you seeing any of these conservative politicians kind of back to them kind of having this moment and going, oh, OK, I guess we'll do it. Are there any conversion moments? Are there any conservatives that have converted to riding a bike or any sort of influencers, you know, that are all of a sudden like, oh, I'm going to ride a bike. It would be like Mayor de Blasio, right, suddenly riding a bike. That would be incredible. Is anything like that happening? I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it, particularly among the suburban politicians. You know, they you can talk about health. You can talk about Vision Zero. You can talk about things. But, you know, we had like we had an interesting debate just uh, last week where it's illegal in Toronto to have a beer in a park. And so they were going to have a vote about this. And in downtown Toronto, you know, people live in apartments. They don't have gardens and backyards. But all of the politicians, of course, have backyards. If they want to sit outside and have a beer, then, you know, they don't have any issue at all because it's legal in their backyard. And there was like such sort of disgust from everyone who lives downtown. You know, who are you guys to sit there out, you know, 20 miles out in the suburbs here to be telling us that I can't have a beer in the neighborhood park? And all it does is, you know, all of these rules when they bring in sort of bike bell rules and uh, beer in park rules and that, it's just a way of sort of giving the police another reason to beat up on black kids and things like that. And it's just and poor kids and it's just such inequality and such problem. And the the beer and parks attitude is the exact attitude that they have with bikes and with everything else, you know, make some stupid rules so they can stop people. And that's what I really object to. Yeah, well, it seems like, I mean, I'm wondering if more and more, they're really seeming irrelevant, you know, kind of in the news, the way that they're making decisions and sort of to your point, you sit in the backyard and you've got your, you know, you drive your huge car down into downtown, or you sit in your backyard and drink your beer. I really feel like, people are starting to realize that they can speak up, right? And that there is a way to leverage social media for good, not just for complaining. So I'm kind of wondering, you know, if the people in downtown get loud enough, will that impact a political leader going, oh, yeah, because they're going to look so irrelevant? Well, it is. I think that is happening to a degree. And there are some better politicians being elected. But um they're mostly still pro-car, anti-bike, suburban. Even our minister of transport until recently, the federal minister, who I really admired. He was an astronaut. He went up to space three times. He was sort of a hero. I thought here we'll have a minister of transport who actually has really traveled. You know? Right, right, right. And uh, he was a road bike guy. He said, you know, all he ever wanted to do was get people to put helmets on and uh, have sort of trails in the country. And if you tried to talk to this guy for years about, you know, urban bike issues, you know, you're a mark, you're wrong. You're a wonderful guy, but you're wrong about helmets. And he would show his astronaut suit and said, I never went anywhere without my helmet, you know. Well, it's funny because that is one of the ways that we really connected more, I think that we talked and you wrote an article that included a quote from me or whatever, but this idea to just remind people that bikes are transportation. Exactly. And now that, you're hitting our main point. They yeah. never kept that. And that's the thing that's so interesting. I mean, I even have, I'm sure you do too. I have mainly guys who are cyclists, right? Road cyclists on the weekend. And I've gone out on rides with them and it's always been about how long it is or how big a hill you can take or all this stuff. And I'm just like, but this route that I go is much more beautiful. Like you just, the way that you ride and your frame is so different. And right. those same guys know how dangerous it is to ride, to get from their house to out far enough from the city to feel quote unquote safe. They know how hard it is. So they don't ride in the city because it's too unsafe. And I'm right. just like, if you did, because you're the ones buying the like $10,000 bikes, you can be an influencer to make this change. So that is just bikes or transportation. Why is that so hard of a concept? I think one of the epiphanies that may have helped convince a few people about this was at the start of our 
many lockdowns. You know, they've handled the they've handled the pandemic very, very badly up here. You know, do we stay open? Do we lock down? Well, this is the same anywhere. When they first did the big lockdown of every non-essential retailer, bike shops were considered non-essential. And then there was actually a debate. And all kinds of people came up and said, you know, the bike is transportation. It's not <laughs> recreation. And there was a considerable debate about this in the province and in the city. And in the end, they did decide, yes, bikes are transportation. How about that? Meanwhile, a month ago, I called to make an appointment to get my snow tires removed. I have studded tires, and my appointment is tomorrow at 11 o'clock. I mean, it <laughs> took a month to get an appointment. It's so crazy. Well, you've never loved your bike shop more, I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I'm glad that they're finally getting their due. The other thing that this points out is just that whole thing that happened in New York City, I think this was even before COVID, where all the essential, the delivery people, right? Everyone's scrambling. They like call to order food because they don't want to go anywhere. And then New York City is like busting these delivery guys for having not having a helmet and riding their e-bike on the sidewalk or whatever. And it, all, it just all goes to that point. It's like you're this is transportation and these guys are not in little vans driving around. They're like, we right. should totally be supporting that. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I just feel like this tra bikes or transportation is just we just have to keep yelling louder and louder. It's just not you know, and, and part of sort of the emissions, so kind of going into climate change and the climate emergency and stuff and what, you know, I'm a new, a new leaser of an EV and I totally get EVs and kind of I'm in line with that, but it is to the point where when you're talking about transportation and climate change, it's just like, we gotta, you know, we gotta get all EVs and that's gonna solve our problem. And all of these, you know, Costa Samaras, all of these studies and this research to show that that is not the case. We gotta get people out of cars. Yes, absolutely. And this is the thing that I go over and I get such criticism for, because they don't understand this concept of embodied carbon and that it takes so much steel and aluminum and lithium to build an electric car that, yes, over their life cycle, they're far, far better than gasoline cars. There's no question. But we don't have a life cycle. We've got a couple of years and we've got a carbon budget. And every molecule of carbon that we you uh, that we put out from making steel and from banging metal and doing that is going against that carbon budget. And so if you look at an, an electric bike that's got 100 the carbon footprint of an electric car, then it only makes sense to promote them wherever you can and not say we're going to give $6,000 subsidy for every EV that we sell instead of saying, here, why don't we just give you, pay you? Like in <laughs> France, I think they're talking about you get rid of your car, we'll give you an e-bike and we'll pay you money. Well, that's the thing, too. I mean, it's interesting now that to see with these COVID vaccinations, they're like paying people 100 bucks to get them. And it's just like, yeah, because over not even too long a time, that's totally going to pay for itself. Right. But and, and so, you know, I, I never understand this because, you know, they don't understand. Nobody understands this concept of embodied carbon, which mainly because it's a stupid name. It's not embodied. It's in the atmosphere. You really what I like. I, I call it up front carbon, the upfront emissions from making things. And you can't think about life cycle analysis when you've got a fixed carbon budget that we do. If I recalculate it at 440 gigatons, that's it. Put that into the air from now on and we miss 1.5 degrees. So that's why every we're talking gigatons there, but you know, we're talking just tons with a, an EV like you know, eight for a Leaf and 10 for a Tesla 3 and probably 50 for an electric Hummer. I mean, th these things shouldn't be allowed. Yeah, yeah. Well, on that point, I'm actually really curious. We talked a little bit about your kind of personal progression with e-bikes, et cetera, and the climate thing. And now you're, you've been riding in Treehugger since, I think I said, two, well, 2005. And sort of, I'm, I'm very curious about the media's coverage of transportation and bikes and how that seems to be taking a little longer for those dots to be connected. So I'm interested both in your experience writing about it and if you've seen changes in comments or in engagement with those posts, and then also your opinion about just media covering transportation and 
maybe how they're doing a good job or how they could do a better job, just if you have ideas on that. Well, I, when, I, when you asked that question and mentioned that in your list, I started thinking about who's doing this well. And, you know, it's almost like, I think, a, an underground movement. I mean, if you look at The Guardian, Peter Walker, who's such a wonderful writer about cycling, he started as a political columnist. And he basically is a political columnist and started writing about bikes on the side. And the Toronto Globe and there's Oliver Moore, who's basically a political columnist, but seriously believes in bicycles and writes a lot about bikes. And in essence, you know, they've got a car section and a wheels section in every newspaper because they're the biggest advertising advertisers and they pay all these money for these ridiculous articles about I test drove the Hummer and there's no bike section and uh, there's no interest in their part in uh, promoting them in a to a degree. And the newspapers actually have a huge, huge vested interest in promoting cars because they are, I believe, still the biggest advertisers that still advertise in newspapers. I mean, nobody does, but when I open the papers, usually there's still a wheels section on the Saturday paper. Yeah, you do the, in, just as a note in Canada, because of Sunday closing, Sunday blue laws up here, we never had Sunday papers. So our big paper is the Saturday oh, paper. Okay. So that's where the wheels section is. Okay. But uh, it's always four wheels, never two. Well, I but to your point, talking about the, uh, Peter Walker and the columnist in, in Toronto, political commentator. So that, I do think there's something really interesting there. If we're never going to get the newspapers to get a bike column, which we won't, the political, I think it's very interesting that the political writers then tend to be the ones that are sort of, you know, talking about bikes. I think there is something to all of the columnists, including climate action columnists, or all, there are a lot more climate journalists these days talking about how they get to work, right? Maybe right. it is right? Maybe it isn't, they can't have an opinion or they can't really go on and on about it. I don't know, right? But more of these cross-sector journalists covering whatever, right? Need to, environment, climate, whatever, social justice, right? Need to be talking about the fact that they're riding a bike. To that point, I will say there's a great, oh, what's his name? Warren Cars did that great interview with the New York Times columnist who lives in Virginia, who has an e-carbo bike. And he, and I got to, I'll, figure it out. Uh, while you're talking, I'll look it up. Anyway, it was an amazing, and it was just, it was just a matter of course, right? I live in, where does he live? In somewhere in Virginia and, or Charlottesville, I think. And he was just like, I got this bike and oh my goodness. So he doesn't write about bikes. He's an op-ed writer, I think. We need to hear more of that. The papers will never cover bikes. I think we all have to get louder. So even like anybody that we know, famous climate journalists and you, right? Even you're using your platform to do that. Whereas you would maybe be writing more about building design. And so it maybe seems weird right. writing about bikes. I think there's a huge opportunity there. Well, the thing again about that I realized that you know, Jarrett Walker, uh, who's a transportation consultant, I think he's worked, uh, you know, he basically, the smartest tweet that I ever saw was his line that sort of transportation and land use are the same thing described in different languages. That, you know, basically when you've got a car culture on the roads, you've got the built form represents car culture. So you've got suburbia and cars. And when you've got a bike culture, you've got a different level of density, of urban density. That's where you've got people living more in apartments and more in duplexes and townhouses. And that, you know, which mode of transportation is really a function of the urban form that we live in. And where the bike culture is changing things is that we're sort of, it's beginning to bust the traditional land use transportation relationship, especially e-bikes. E-bikes, for instance, I think are the answer to the suburbs because in low density suburbia, if you've got to go like three kilometers for a quart of milk, you're usually going to drive. But three kilometers on an e-bike is nothing. I always used to drive my car to the Home Depot, not if I was buying lumber, but if I was buying light bulbs and cleaning stuff and things like that. And I don't even think about it now. You know, it's four kilometers, I take the bike. 
Oh, sorry, I should be talking miles for you too, Hila. Oh, no, Doing no, no, Doing all no, no. the kilometer stuff being north of the border. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. But, no, uh, you know, I think that this is one of the really transformational things about e-bikes in particular is that they can sort of bust the suburban paradigm and provide a way of getting around that works there that in a lot of ways a regular bike doesn't that sometimes the distances and the effort is just like too much i think you're i mean have you written something about that so that i can like make sure that i share that link a lot that's a great point well the only i think my colleague Catherine martinko talking about how she uses her bike for everything in a sort of small town though where everybody drives i think she's written some stuff i haven't but i'm going to they have such an important advantage well i think because everyone there's a thing right there's even a political thing where it's like oh those you know dumb people in the city they're always talking about themselves and only thinking about themselves and bikes are only for urban people and whatever i think to your point busting the suburban paradigm right that is a tree hugger article right because right. it's it's a mind blower and it's a huge shift i want to just mention real quickly the great war on cars episode was jamel Bowie, I hope I pronounced his name. Oh, yes, 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 right? yes. So that everybody, it's episode 61 looks like on the War on Cars, just to give them a plug. Um, but busting this, so those paradigms, the other thing I want to say with regard to land use, I didn't even ever really make that connection, but I do the same thing in, in my plant-based and food systems work. It's like agriculture is like land use is one of the top things in the IPCC climate report, right? It's like, we got to pay attention to land use. Well, guess what? There's agriculture and bikes in land use. Like there's Land use is a huge chunk where we can save yes. all emissions and we're not doing it. We're just looking at it as like farmland. Like it just, they're not even thinking about, you know, it's amazing. So I think framing it as land use is another really interesting point from a climate perspective. And also just, it would seem, and I would hope that more climate journalists start to cover stuff like that. You know, this is so interesting. So one of the things I'm just kind of, again, I don't know if you have any, but is there any insight on messaging or framing with regard to bikes, e-bikes, et cetera, that you've discovered in your writing or that you've noticed in your reading of things that work? Um, who's, who's maybe getting the most sort of engagement or the most, what are the topics or the ways to frame this that get the most attention by average Joe consumers? Well, I think that the main one, there's been a real transformation in the last couple of years as they've become more popular that we've gotten away from the, it's cheating thing. Remember that? Yes, yes. E-bikes were cheating. And I think that's gone. I think that's uh, pretty much, okay, we get it now. But the other place that I think that we really have to start getting serious and looking at is that there are 70 million baby boomers in the United States. And this is a market that, you know, I'm one of them. It's uh, the thing about the e-bike is that it has real possibilities of getting a lot of older people out there in the air, getting exercise, getting health, and doing things that they wouldn't have done on a regular bike. They would not have gotten on a regular bike. Virginia, who is someone that you should speak to, she's a woman who runs the best e-bike shop in Toronto, an, an e-bike only shop, very successful downtown. And she has one brand of bike that she actually I think she's the only distributor of called Amigo, uh, that she um, sold two dozen of to a retirement community in Arizona, where they were, somebody was a Canadian going back and forth, and they thought, well, we should get something like this. And she bought all of these bikes for the community, because in Arizona, it's really, really hot, and they're <laughs> older people. And they all say it revolutionized that community instead of everybody running around in dumb golf carts uh which are on the roads they're on the bikes now and they're loving it and i think this is something that we have to start paying a lot more attention to that uh now that they're not considered cheating and they're actually in the marketplace and you don't look weird on one in most places that there could be a real real e-bike boom in the sort of in the aging boomer sector and the other thing that you're so big on all the time is sort of the cargo bike boom because e-bikes 
totally transform cargo bikes because, yes, they've been around for a while and everyone in Copenhagen uses them, but they're heavy. And when you get in a cargo e-bike, it transforms it completely much more than an e-bike over a regular bike. A cargo bike is a world of difference. And I've been looking for one because my daughter, I have a a granddaughter, and my daughter loves the idea. I'll stick the kid in the front of the cargo bike and do all my shopping on them. But they're really expensive. Yeah. I mean, cargo e-bikes have a long way to go where, you know, it's literally more than a car for the one I was looking at. Oh, yeah. Oh, Oh, I like this one. It banks when you turn. Oh, this Swedish, this (laughs) Scandinavian one is really much. How much? $10,000. No, I'm not doing that. Yeah, you can't do that. But it does pencil out if you look at if you could look at it in the long run, it sure does. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, I love your point about kind of making this an aging in America story, right? And, And looking at resilience and how people are living a lot of people are living a lot longer. I mean, I don't know things have, I don't know how health is. It seems like people are living longer than they did, you know, a hundred years ago or whatever. And oh, wow. I just actually did um, nudge a friend in Vermont about e-bikes and she immediately knew that they weren't going to afford one anytime soon, but that she has a mother who is late seventies, early eighties. And I shared this on Twitter the other day and they found, and they bought an e-bike for her. And now that woman who's a yoga teacher and all this other stuff, but wasn't going to get on a bike can go on the easy trail rides with her kids because she's got a little motor on her e-bike and she is in bliss. My friend sent me these pictures. So this idea, and and my point, and you know this too, I have an 87 year old dad that I got going on an e-bike. They came to visit me, I don't know, five years ago. And he immediately went home and bought an e-bike. And now he's so proud to tell me that he took an 11 mile round trip, you know, thing and he went to the doctor on it and whatever it is mind-blowingly amazing and i think population and news coverage and health coverage is talking about aging in america a lot these dots need to be connected well yes and the other thing about aging also is you know everybody had this idea about aging in place and that how you design something to age in place and they want to stay in their suburban houses and when they buy one they say oh i've got to buy it all on one level and that and uh, or, or they say, oh, you know, got to have elevator in it if it's a multi-story house. I just think, and you know, they're designing houses that are killing them because it's all about inactivity. You know, nobody has to do anything. They just walk from the fridge and uh, they drive everywhere. And you know, you we've got to when you look when you go to Denmark and when you uh, and you look at all the older people on their bikes and you go and visit them as I did and you know they're in the fourth floor flat and they're all running up the stairs and that <laughs> that this is what keeps them fit keeps them alive much much longer than here where we're designing houses that actually kill people we're designing communities that kill people and the e-bike like the stairs are two th- are like two things that i always say you know we shouldn't be designing our these out of our houses we should be designing them into our houses and we should be designing communities that you can safely ride e-bikes everywhere like you know why are there no bike lanes in the suburbs because everybody says oh we can ride everywhere no you need them on every damn street and proper separated ones not like we have here where it's a stupid paint oh yeah i mean stupid that's, paint. i don't know how i mean hopefully we can like skip over this okay we threw in a painted lane or a lane with those little plastic ballers every, that sort of is assumed to be transportation infrastructure i agree but i do well, think pat- that city leaders they, the voters, right? The voters they seem to care the most about are the old, older people, right? Or the boomers right. who've been there a while who have, I don't know, quote unquote, more money or whatever. It's like, okay, aging, you know, th- connecting bikes and safe lanes with older people versus they seem to not care about the 20 year olds or the 30 year olds or the 40 year olds, right? right? But they'll care more about the older people. That's a wonderful story that's not being spread enough or cities aren't paying enough attention to that. No, and the cities are the ones who are paying for the police and paying for the road maintenance and in Canada paying for the medical care since it's public here. And, you know, so it's important. 
to keep your citizens healthy, and it, and it costs a fraction. Like every time, what's you would know the numbers off the top of your head that like I think that you know how much it costs uh, governments to maintain infrastructure for a car which is serious number of dollars uh, compared to what it would cost them for the equivalent in a bike. And of course, it's an absolute fraction. So it's in their financial interest, if you care about taxes, to be promoting this. You know, another idiot thing that Rob Ford did and his brother, who's now the runs the province, got elected to run the province, is that, you know, they always said subways, subways, subways. Nobody wants to be in their car and get stuck behind a stupid trolley. So even though we had great streetcars in Toronto and the previous mayor had laid out a plan for covering light rail transit across the whole city, first thing he did was cancel everything and put all the money, not nearly enough, into a stupid two-stop subways. Wow. Which serves nobody which takes 10 years, which has a car, which is like concrete tubes, burying everything in concrete tubes because he doesn't want anyone, anything to get in front of a car. And this is like not only insanity from a tax point of view, it carries a quarter the number of people and it's solid concrete, it's solid carbon dioxide and uh, exactly the wrong thing. And in Seattle, of course, they built a stupid tunnel nobody needed, so it's very frustrating well when you were talking about the getting uh boomers or kind of older people on bikes more one of the things that struck me is that they're actually a perfect community to get on because we ultimately they kind of don't want to drive their car much anyway the older people get the least the less likely they kind of like driving their car the more they're going to drive it only in the very middle of the day right for errands like as they're kind of safety view kind of shrinks with regard to getting out at all it goes right into the perfect fit for just riding a bike for short trips to get to the grocery store and the pharmacy right and they found that and they found that again in the netherlands and in denmark and that the people are not capable of driving anymore because your cone of vision deteriorates in that and all of you have to have better reaction times the cruising on a bicycle is easier and safer, and they can do it much longer. I mean, in North America, losing your license is like, for many seniors, it's like committing suicide. It and um, it doesn't have to be. Well, and also, I mean, I think this is another interesting thing with regard to just sort of businesses and businesses assuming, I'm sure you've seen it in Toronto, we've seen it here, assuming that cars and parking are the answer to getting more consumers into their stores and stuff. And really, we know as bikers, when you ride by and you can, you know, quickly stop and park your bike really quickly, you're way more likely to stop at all these little mom and pop shops and whatever. So getting all the tests have shown that, right. And getting all the studies, getting that word across so that we don't have to like pound them. And it doesn't take 10 years of community meetings with businesses for them to make help make the right decisions. So we need to influence small business owners about this in a much bigger way. So they're all- Well, what did de Blasio, yeah, de Blasio in New York all the time when trying to get restrictions on cars to saying, oh, well, old people have to get to their doctors. Or whenever a bike lane's going in, they always, the concern trolls come out and say, oh, well, you've got to leave parking for old people and disabled people. Disabled people you usually don't drive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of them and a lot of them bike. And um, a lot of people who can't walk because of their knees, they bike because it's easy on the knees. Um, A lot of older people bike instead of driving, but it always comes out, the de Blasio thing, oh, the old people have to drive to their doctors. They're not. Yeah, have well, you talked to an, are, have you are. talked to an old person lately? <laughs> no, like you know, that's what it. It's like they're saying this based on fifty years ago or something, and I I agree. So I there are so many ways that this story isn't being told as well as it could. And so I guess you know, kind of starting to wind down in our conversation, it's like you know, as somebody who's been in the media for a while, and and I, how, how can we help? 
media cover this better? What, what, how do we support this? How can we make them feel comfortable doing this or make it, I mean, I do all I can, right? By amplifying and really going, thank you so-and-so for writing this article. Like, how can we get media to see this and cover this in every aspect? Yeah, the problem again is, you know, the whole picture of what is media and what is, what are media, I should say, and what has happened to it. You know, that newspapers, it's all fragmented. I mean, you and I have, certain media we look at and uh, listening to the war on cars as media, but like, do the papers matter the way they used to? Uh, People, uh, how do we define it? This is, I think, the biggest problem. The media is fractured and nobody's talking to anybody else in the same way that they used to. So, you know, the whole world's turned into Facebook and it's very hard to get attention outside of your own little group. So it's a very, very difficult question to Mm. deal with. You know, I've got my audience and there's like nine tenths of the population who wouldn't even think about going to tree, looking at it. So Right, right. And that's the thing. It's like the kind of more mainstream publication. So tree hugger, you're already predisposed to be like interested in climate and whatever. Right. So how and that's the thing. It's like you look at Guardian and I think I read Guardian all the time, but I feel like that's like become a leftist you know, like these are all in our bubbles, right? So it's yeah, wall- the Guardian is yeah. a true bubble paper. It's like not nearly, not one of the biggest ones by a long shot uh, in the UK. And uh, if you read the Guardian, you're a certain kind of lefty labor type there. And uh, it's very polarized. And um, so, you know, I just don't know what you do. I mean, there's the, we just always look at the New York Times and say, well, this is what media... I, is but it's you know the whole world has changed so I, it's hard to answer your question. Thank you. I, I I agree. I mean, I was hoping that there would be something, but one of the things I'm seeing in the other work that I do in the food systems work is that some some of these journalists who've gone into Substack right have really made a clear niche. But again, who's going to go to pay to read that person's? stuff other than someone who's already bought into it yeah i mean this is like even more than we're talking about it used to be oh we have our own our own uh favorite uh green websites and i'll go uh read david roberts first on grist and then he'll go to a a bigger website with box and then when voices like that go on to substack and so many are they basically disappear mm-hmm. i mean they're Nobody's seeing them except their little group of paid followers. And us. fans on Twitter, like us. <laughs> yes. And nobody really looks at, you know, people don't, the number of people who actually use Twitter isn't that big and hasn't been growing dramatically. And even, even Donald Trump, nobody actually looked at Donald Trump on Twitter. They listened to Fox News say Donald Trump said this on Twitter. Right. I didn't think of that. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I almost, I have to say, I almost want to figure out a way to start a nonprofit that is something that will help climate writers cover transit, cover bikes better, right? Wouldn't that be, or, or to, for, to fund some sort of project through People for Bikes or the Bike League or something where we could talk with media and mainstream media, right? And have them tell us what they need so that they can cover the story better. Like I've not seen any aging stories about it, right? I've not really, other than in the AARP. The AARP has probably done an article, right? But who cares? It's the AARP. So what about the New York Times doing a thing that's all about, you know, designing for aging, including a huge section on bikes? Why not? Yeah, why not? Well, is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to add in sort of based on your history, your experience, what you're seeing, what's missing, anything for the Bike Talk audience? And I'm just looking at my notes from before. We've talked about sort of the baby boomers and active exercise. We've talked about, I think the most interesting, the most interesting thing uh, is what are the lessons from the pandemic going to be? What are the lessons from that we're gonna keep, that's gonna be permanent change. I think that we got a huge number of people onto bikes who were never uh, on them before, that they got on them by necessity. I think that in Toronto in particular, a, a lot of people who got bikes so they wouldn't have to get on the subway are gonna stay on the bikes. And I think that's happening in New York City too. I think the politicians will have a hard time pulling up the temporary bike lanes. There was 
a thing they were doing called Active TO, Active Toronto, where they took one of the sort of urban highways, sort of streets that were really highways. And last uh, fall, in the, it closed them every Saturday so everyone could get out and have a really great bike ride in a really wide street. And this year they weren't going to do it because a parallel street that would have taken that was taking the traffic was being torn up for construction. And so they said, oh, well, we can't close Lakeshore Boulevard because this street is uh, going to be closed. And there was an uproar. There was serious complaints. There were all kinds of downtown politicians again saying, no, we really have to give people a place to go out and get fresh air and get exercise safely during this pandemic. And we can do that by having the active TO, active Toronto. And so they said, "Okay, we'll do it and did it. And so I'm hoping that there will be a groundswell that will prevent us from backsliding too far. There's going to be backsliding, definitely. But I'm hoping that it won't be complete 100% backsliding. And we have to push for that. I don't know if you have that where you are, that there were were measures brought in to help deal with the pandemic that they're now saying, okay, we're back to normal. No, no going back. We had them in Seattle. They were, I think they're called stay healthy streets, something like that. And, and I, they were streets that would have been good for me to be riding down anyway, but it hadn't occurred to me. So it was really good for people that were bicyclists already to go, Oh, that is a great alternate route. So I discovered a couple of cool routes that I hadn't thought of that would have worked, you know, for somebody who's experienced in biking views, but to your point, it brought out new riders and so they the the cities get sick of all of us going come on come on you know like yelling at them now there's this whole layer of new riders and usually right they're often young families or like the dads are suddenly at home they're not working so they're riding down the street with their little five-year-old daughter like there's nothing like that so if they changes the picture it changes the picture because people get sick of the advocates and people like us that just keep hammering it and i i totally get that so that's why i'm always looking for the conversion stories and to that point i do think that like you know joe blow who works in executive management at amazon who lives in my neighborhood probably right all of a sudden was working from home wasn't going down to amazon every day and he got an e-bike and he started riding around with his daughter or whatever like that person needs to stand up and talk about it and that's developing a a political constituency of a scale that they have to listen it's not just a bunch of bike maniacs it's yep regular voters yeah it's regular voters and just sort of and the other thing that i know from a communication standpoint is it's the newly converted right so oh my goodness i just had this experience let me tell you and then that's how we get these and and it really it would be a lot of moms and a lot of dads and a lot of people that you know everyone thinks they're serving the amazon and the microsoft workers and it's like you know what those guys aren't gonna a lot of them aren't going back to work i think a lot of them are able to work remotely forever if they start talking about bikes it'd be a huge difference anyway i do think that this pandemic opened up something and i think you know i'm hopeful as you are as well and so i Thank you for and thank you for sharing your experience with the e-bikes and your wisdom and kind of things that you've written about and your design input. I just really appreciate the time you took to talk with us today. It was a lot of fun. Thank you very much.